Welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern, and I'm joined here on the podcast by Heidi White and Tim McIntosh. Heidi, Tim, welcome back to the show. Tim, you've been away for two weeks, so extra welcome back. Thank you so much. Thank you. Heidi, how's it going? I'm going I'm going great. That's not what I meant to say. It's a thing people say. You're good. Hi, David. I'm great. <laughs> I'm excited about recording and speaking English. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Well, so Tim, how was your uh, your time away? We had an Brandon filled in ably for you, but nonetheless, we are happy to uh, have you back. Not not because we're not happy with Brandon's performance, but just because you're you're a swell fellow, and it's always great to talk to you. Insert <laughs> thank you, David. You know, whatever other nice things need to be said. It's good to be back. I missed you guys. The ship is now back on the water. Exactly. We have our uh, first mate back. I don't know. If we're going with nautical terms, what is your role on the ship? A uh, swabber of the deck. I, I was going to say that, but I felt like if I said it, it would be mean. So you need to say it. <laughs> <laughs> Heidi's the one who climbs up the mast and gets up in that bucket way up there and looks out for land. Yeah. yeah. Can no, I the, say things bu- like ahoy? I really want to say ahoy. Yeah, I would yeah, of course you need to say ahoy. I mean, what, what do you think this is? A non-nautical podcast? <laughs> well, we are here. Speaking of non-nautical podcasts, I mean, I guess it's kind of a nautical podcast because part of the book takes place out on the open sea. It's true. The Odyssey is pretty nautical. Although we are not in a nautical section right now. No. Um, we are here to discuss books 19 and 20 of the Odyssey, both of which take place in a uh, an actual house and not a houseboat. Um, we will get to that in just a minute. I just want to remind you that you can send in your questions. We are a couple weeks away from the, the end of this conversation. And so make sure that you have questions ready. We will post a thread. Hey, Heidi, how about I task you with posting that thread this week? On you Clubs? got it. All right, cool. And so people I can, can handle that. People can... Um, post their questions there. You can also email them to us at closereadspodcast at gmail.com. If you want to join the conversation, you can do so on Facebook, on the Facebook group, search Close Reads Podcast Discussion Group, or just Close Reads on Facebook and you'll find that. You can hit that little join button and we will we'll open the gates to you. Uh, and then you can also find us on Twitter and on Instagram at Close Reads Pods, should you uh, so desire. Don't forget about the other podcasts we have going on. Got the Othello conversation over on the Plays the Thing, and of course the Daily Poem, and the new podcast, uh, new episodes of Libromania coming um, very soon, um, including a podcast about the worst poet in history. So if you are interested in that show, make sure you're subscribed. And um, if you like this podcast, you can help us out in two ways. You can rate or review the show. That goes a long way um, in helping us spread the word and finding listeners and of course, letting us know how we're doing. Um, and then you can also support the show on Patreon. So if you go to patreon.com slash close reads, you can support the show at a couple of different tiers, get some cool swag, and of course, access to our bonus episodes. We'll have another bonus short story episode coming up here at the end of... What month are we in? The end of September. So um, be on the lookout for all that stuff. All right, that brings hey, us to... David, yes, sir. Can I, can I cut in for a second? So Sarah Jane Bentley and I have been doing on the Plays the Thing podcast, Othello, and we're going to record tomorrow the last act of Othello. Um, and so this is also a shout out for a request for questions about mm-hmm. Othello. I get the impression that people are probably dipping into the Plays the Thing more like when they are going to maybe teach one of Shakespeare's plays or something like that. So mm-hmm. it's a yeah. little bit more of a, I don't know how to describe it. It feels like Close Reads is a, an ongoing book club. And it seems like the plays the thing is more of a resource. So I don't know if listeners are listening with the same avid attention and the same avid attention to Close Reads as they are the plays the thing, which means um, if those of you who are listening to both, if you could post questions about Othello that'd be greatly... We'd really appreciate it. Hmm. Definitely. Yeah, we'll post a thread on on um, the Facebook group for that as well. And again, if you don't are not on Facebook and you want to you know, send in questions, you can email uh, closereadspodcast at gmail.com and we can make sure those questions get uh, asked on the podcast as well. All right. So books 19 and 20 of the Odyssey. Um, Tim, uh, will, you, will you give us the quick 
you know, three to four sentence summary of what happened in these two books, just to give us a little context for yeah. the conversation and catch people up who are, you know, maybe got to the end of this section and thought, well, now I have to keep reading because I need to find out what happens. So right. know, specifically in 19 and 20, what, what takes place? So 19 is titled by our translator, Emily Wilson, The Queen and the Beggar. Book 20 is called The Last Banquet, according to her chapter titles. So the centerpiece of 19 is Odysseus and Penelope having a conversation. And and there's the ongoing kind of um, the consistent kickback from the suitors in the banquet hall against Odysseus, disguised still as a beggar. Um, 20 there's one final kind of get together with all the suitors and Odysseus. Um, along the way, we have a meeting between Odysseus and his nurse, the nurse who kind of like helped raise him, who nursed him. And she recognizes a scar on Odysseus's thigh. And so, of course, now she knows. So it's kind of interesting. The last people to discover who this beggar is who's come to Ithaca is um, Penelope and the suitors. Most of the other main players now know who it is. And um, there's a little bit of a setup in book 20 for a contest of stringing Odysseus's bow and shooting it through several axe heads um, and we should anticipate that in the next book or two. So the idea being Penelope is going to pose to the suitors, hey, whoever can string Odysseus's bow and shoot an arrow through several axe heads can win my heart. And we we all know who's going to have the ability to do that. We know it's the beggar who's actually Odysseus. But that doesn't happen until the next next couple books. Okay, so one of the things we talked about last week, Tim, and I, I don't know if we've talked about this yet with you, um, but definitely with Brandon and Heidi last week, is is related to a line early-ish, you know, the first third of book 19. And it's where Odysseus and Penelope are talking. And I wanted to return to this, this topic mm-hmm. because... Um, not that you need to have, not that we need to have closure on a on a topic when we're discussing it, but I, I just think we need to need to linger with it a little bit longer. She says to him in line one twenty four, she says this. Oh, well, it says Penelope said cautiously, and then she says, "Well, stranger, the Dallas gods destroyed my strength and beauty the day the Greeks went marching off to Troy, and my Odysseus went off with them." If he came back and cared for me again, I would regain my beauty and my status. And this is right after Odysseus has said to her, my good woman, no mortal on earth would speak against you. Your glory reaches up to the wide sky. And I wanted to talk a little bit more about this, this concept of Penelope's beauty being tied specifically to Odysseus's proximity to her. Um, so Heidi, I want to turn to you first on this one. We like, like I said, we did talk about this last week, just, but not, not a lot. Um, do you think, so I wrote in the margins here, kind of a silly question, but I I said, when she says, if he came back and cared for me again, I would regain my beauty and my status. And I wrote the question literally. Right. So is, how do you read this? Like, do you, I mean, we talked a lot about the idea of, her beauty um, and and the way that Athena sort of controls the situation and sort of manipulates the situation and all that last week. Um, do you take this? I mean, to what degree is she saying this literally? Right. I, I think it's a really good question. I noticed that this particular section particularly because we talked about it last week. So I kind of lingered over it, like you said, and thought and thought about it. I've always made the assumption that this was not literal. Mm-hmm. Every time I've read this, I've, um, I've, I've just kind of glossed over it because in my mind, um, a woman has control over her own beauty. 
I just, it's an assumption I make, right? If you care for yourself and you take care of your physical appearance, appearance, then you're more beautiful as a woman than you would be if you neglected it. And so I've always just assumed that that's what she's talking about, that there's, that she's neglecting her beauty because she doesn't have her husband there and she doesn't want it to be pleasing to other men, lesser men, as she says in her prayer uh, to Athena in book 20. Um, she says, don't give me over to, to please a lesser man than Odysseus. And so that's always how I've assumed, but just this, this, this one time reading it, I've thought, I wonder if we're meant to take that literally. I wonder if Homer intended to communicate that a woman, when she is cared for, is objectively more beautiful. And I've never considered that before. Um, I don't know if there's cultural tie-ins for that. Maybe some of our listeners do. Um, but I'm I'm just considering for the first time, maybe we are meant to take that literally. And Heidi, can I ask a clarifying question? Cared right. for. What what do you mean cared for? Like loved and protected. Um yeah. like like under his pleasure of her, she would bloom in beauty again. Um, simply because he's there to love her and care for her. Um, so I I don't know if that's there's some kind of ancient standard about that. I've never read that before in like a Homer commentary or anything like that. And I've read a lot about Homer and I've never encountered anything about this particular issue before, which doesn't mean it's not out there. But I in reading it, I think, I wonder if we are meant to take it literally, not just as evidence of her grief, which is how I've taken it before. She's grieving, so she's neglecting her beauty because she doesn't have her husband there. Um, so she's kind of let herself go in a sense. Um, so, but maybe there is some kind of, maybe there is some kind of thread here of a woman who is beloved by her husband and cared for in his presence does bloom in beauty in some way. So I, I was, uh, I just flipped over. Well, of course I just lost my place. Like in the minute <laughs> I started talking, but I, I flipped over to, um, Fagels and he says, his translation says, whatever form and feature I had, what praise I'd won, the deathless gods destroyed that day the Achaeans sailed away to Troy, my husband in their ships, Odysseus. If he could return to tend my life, the renown I had would only grow in glory. Mm. So, Fagels emphasizes the concept of renown, and Emily Wilson is emphasizing the concept of beauty in her books uh. there. He, you know, Emily Wilson translates the bit above where Odysseus is speaking and he says, your glory reaches up to the sky and Fagel says, your fame, believe me, has reached the vaulting skies. So Fagel's is focusing on the concept of, of fame and renown, like the, the, the idea of being known to other two people being known widely. And, sh- and Emily Wilson is focusing on the concept of, of glory and beauty. I find that fascinating. Right. Sort of distinctions. The reason I asked this about literally is because I was reading that line, I would regain my beauty and my status. And, you know, I was thinking, you know, initially my instinct is to say, well, it's a kind of a poetic, metaphorical concept, right? But then I was thinking, the status part is literal. Right. Because if he returns, she will regain her status as the true queen of the kingdom, you know, like as, and, and she'll be known as Odysseus's wife and, you know, all these kind of things. In some ways that sort of takes away her own individuality. But on the other hand, at least in that world, it's, you know, it's also empowering, right? She would become more powerful by him being home than when he's gone. The suitors would be gone. She wouldn't be oppressed in that way, you know, all those sorts of things. So that part is literal. So then I got to thinking, can the beauty part be metaphorical in the same line as the status part is literal? Right. That's, I had the same thought, the same exact thought as that. And and then I thought that's kind of a lovely, that's kind of lovely actually to think of if she does pray. I said it was Athena, but it's Artemis actually in, in book 20 when she prays um, about, and it, it seems that goddesses increasing women's beauty 
for their husbands is a fairly normal thing to do <laughs> in this culture. Because in that prayer on page 447, uh, a brown line 70, she Penelope is praying to Artemis um, and describing other women who have been made more beautiful by the goddesses for the sake of their husbands. It says Aphrodite helped them. She's talking about the daughters of Pandarius. Aphrodite helped them and gave them honey, cheese, and mellow wine, and Hera gave them beauty and good sense above all other women, Uh, which of course is what we all think about Penelope, right? She's beautiful. She's wise. She's circumspect Penelope. Um, And that's why Odysseus so loves her as her wisdom. And then on the next page, 448, she says, may the gods annihilate me just like them, or may Artemis strike me dead with my gaze fixed upon Odysseus. Let me not make a lesser husband glad when someone weeps all through the day quite overwhelmed by grief but sleeps at night forgetting everything her pain is bearable but i am cursed with nightmares by some god so she's going on saying even at night i cannot rest i cannot restore my beauty and um so goddesses stop stop making me beautiful unless it's for odysseus so there is this sense of the beauty being oriented towards her husband and so therefore her husband may objectively make it shine hmm. you can kind of see I can, I can absolutely see it either way when i read these lines and i'm glad we're talking about it because those lines stuck out to me also and i and i was having a little conversation with myself like what exactly does this does she mean by this the first thing that came to my mind was this might be a little bit impolitic, but I'm going to go for it. I, I was in Argentina, I don't know, maybe six years ago. And Argentina, if you know anything about their kind of like, you know, the most recent years of their history, it's just been a hard place to live. It's not like it's a developing world. It's not, it's developed, but still the people have really suffered economically. They've got a really difficult political situation. And I would ride the bus or I would walk the streets if I was ever going anywhere. And I noticed early on my trip when I was on the bus, I would look at the women's faces and I thought, that woman, if she lived in the United States, I think would look really differently. Mm -hmm. But because of the kind of like daily strain that I'm presuming is part of her life that would not be part of her life, I think, in the United States, given kind of like our socioeconomic flourishing. It, the lines on her face were just like a little bit deeper. Her eyes looked a little bit sadder. And it, like, it really struck me how much wealth and flourishing, I think we don't want to admit it, really does rely in a lot of ways on like the amount of wealth that we have access to. Now, on the other hand, I I can read Penelope's lines as something like, um, when I am with the one that I loved, being loved and protected by the one that I love, there's that sort of radiance that comes to a person that shows. I mean, Every wedding that I have been to, without a doubt, the bride looks so beautiful on that day. Like Mm -hmm. I've never seen a bride that doesn't just look just lovely on that day. And it's not just because the amount of time and care that she's put into her appearance for that special day, but there's something also about she's being, she's going to be with the one that she loves now. This is the thing that they've been looking forward to. Um, and it has an effect. There's a radiance. And I, I can read Penelope's words there either way. Like I'm suffering. My beauty is being lost because I don't have access to the kind of like harmonious world that Odysseus created for me or just being connected to him gives me a sort of radiance like a bride on her wedding day. Right. Hmm. I like that, Tim. I like that a lot. And I I think that it is true that a happy woman is beautiful in, in a way that is unique because of her happiness. It shows. And I think whether we say that Penelope's 
beauty is because of the presence of Odysseus or because she's kind of let herself go either way that um, is what I love about that is the idea that Penelope's beauty, however you interpret it, should properly, rightly, justly be oriented towards Odysseus. Mm -hmm. And she is very aware of that and knows that in his absence, her beauty is... It's diminished in some way. It's diminished and and it should, I think that that's it. And also that she doesn't see a purpose to it. And that's what I keep coming back to over and over again, contrasting her with, say, Helen, who is beautiful so much in, in a way that isn't oriented towards Menelaus ever. It's noticed by all the other men. And it's even possessed by another man. And Penelope is is deliberately, she chooses to see her beauty as a gift for Odysseus, as oriented towards him. Mm. And, and so that, I do realize that that's not necessarily the party line for feminism this day, but I think it's, I'm a woman and a wife and I think that's beautiful. And I think wives should think that way about their husbands, that this beauty, you know, because a lot of, a lot of women, I'll, I'll, as a woman, I can say this in a way that probably you guys can't, right? So that a lot of women get to these middle-aged years and they don't orient it towards their husband. They let them, they orient it towards the outside world. And then at home, they're like, yeah, we've been married for a long time. That's not Penelope. She, granted, they've been separated, but her whole, whole point is, I don't want any other man to possess my beauty. And she's surrounded by these swarms of admirers and she could rise to that and try to entice them, but she doesn't. So I, I think that speaks to her faithfulness and we keep coming back to it again and again in these books, this, this idea of her beauty being diminished in Odysseus's absence. And whatever the source of that, the point of that, the, the message that it sends to the reader is these people belong together and she wants her husband to rejoice in her beauty. And that's what she sees it for. I think that's lovely. Yeah. Hmm. Go ahead, Tim. What are you going to say? No, no, no. I'm done. Well, one of the things I love, I mentioned this a little bit last week too, is I love how Homer keeps bringing, bringing Penelope and Odysseus together. Not just by the fact that they finally get to have a conversation together, but through um, allusions and references that are like epitaphs, even that are like the same. So they're both, you know, they're both referred to as godlike um, at various times. There's the bit where she says, Some god has ruined me right after he has told her, I had a happy life, but Zeus ruined it. Um, so there's a lot of different ways that it's, um, uh, he calls her godlike um, in, in, four, in 111. Um, and that's, of course, something he's been called. So there's all these different ways that, you know, kind of, here and there, Homer's bringing them together um, even before they've been able to actually, you know, before she knows who he is. Which brings me to the question of whether she knows who he is or not. <laughs> um, it seems like there are different takes on this. Um, and I was wondering, you know, there's the bit in, in 819 where she's kind of giving the summary of the story and she actually reveals to him her plot. Um, she says... She says that she, you know, she tells him about how she was weaving this shroud or whatever for uh, Laertes. And yeah. She would unravel it and she would just do it again and again. It took forever. And that's how she was kind of, you know, keeping the suitors at bay. And then her servant girls figure it out and say, you know, you've got to, you know, they make her, they make her do it. So I'm wondering why she, why you think anyway, she, that she reveals this to this person who ostensibly is a stranger to her. And they're obviously having this sort of, private conversation and there's something about him that she finds trustworthy. But do you think that there is any sense that she, that, that in revealing this to him, she has a sense of who he is as some people seem to seem to think, Tim, what do you think about this? And if you don't think that, why does she reveal this much to him? I know, I know. It's like, (laughs) I, I take it as a sort of, um, an intuition 
she reveals it because she has an intuition that this man is uh, special in some way, either because he shares this kind of like virtuous outlook on life that she has, or maybe she even has like a hope. Maybe this like this man seems like he's my husband, or it could be a third option, which is this man knows my husband. He was friends with my husband. He's told me about my husband. And so now he seems like an, I have a friend that I can share this plot with. I trust yeah. him. I, I have a friend that I can share this plot with and he's connected in some way through history to my husband. Mm. Heidi, what do you make of this? Are you in the camp that she has a sense of that? Who, that he is who he pretends he's not? Um, yes. I think that she suspects that this is Odysseus or a God in disguise. Um, to your point about the epithets that are used, and and this is the book I think, book nineteen, in which they this shines the most. It's like in your face. Odysseus said cautiously. Penelope said cunningly. Like they're yeah. all over. Like the, it's like they're these two great tacticians who's are in every way equals are separated from each other and yet drawing together spinning schemes on, you know, it, it's almost like uh, they're on either side of, you know, that, that mirror, the mirrored glass when you hmm. can like, <laughs> they, that's how I oh, see yeah. that they're, they're each of them spinning a scheme in some way to save the kingdom. Um, Odysseus has to hide himself. She seems to be thro- throwing out there how much she loves and is faithful to her husband so that if this is Odysseus in disguise, she wants him to know, like, I have been faithful to you and I want you to come back. But I think that she isn't sure. She doesn't seem completely sure um, and obviously later on we see she's suspicious even when he does reveal himself. And so there's, they've been separated for so long and, and they know that the gods are tricky. And so they kind of, it's, it's like both of them in these two books can't quite put their full weight down yet on mm-hmm. anything. And so they're kind of still hiding behind these cunning schemes that each of them individually are spinning and yet they're becoming allies along the way. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. They're surrounded by their, they're surrounded by enemies. Exactly. Everywhere there are enemies. So ways to kind of like discover, is this person my ally discovering like whether or not this person is going to be allied with me or is going to oppose me. That is a very, very tricky business. And I think both of them are. I love the image of they're like on opposite sides of this mirrored glass because we can, on opposite sides of mirrored glass, you can kind of see the shadows of forms behind the glass. Right. And if these two characters who are supposed to be together, who are just separated by these suitors, if they can make out that their forms are doing the same thing, that's evidence to each of them, but especially Penelope. I, I, Odysseus knows where, what the score is. Penelope doesn't yet know what the score is. But if they can make out that they're kind of um, mirroring each other in their convictions and in their plans and in their affections, then they can trust each other. So it's this kind of, it's this kind of they're trying to figure it out whether they're going to actually dance together and they're kind of on opposite sides of the dance floor at this point, eyeing each other. Right. And throughout this whole book, nothing has been what it seems. Like here is this shifting ground and Odysseus, particularly in book 20, it, see, it seems that that Penelope in book 19 is, um, she doesn't know where to put her weight down. She doesn't know what she can stand on. She's trying to figure that out. But then it's Odysseus in book 20 when he's calling upon the gods. What if I do murder all these suitors? Am I going to be punished for murdering my guests? What is this, you know, what, where he, he for the first time kind of seems to have a little bit of a moral quandary in that point. Um, 
or at least questions for the gods. And and it's Penelope yeah. 19, Odysseus in 20. And they're, they they can't, they do not see, as you pointed out, they, they're seeing but dimly. All they know is they want to get this thing right, made right, but they're not sure what they can trust yet because nothing is what it seems. Hmm. Everything's in disguise. And that's, I mean, no matter how much of a tactician you are, you can't, that's slippery. That You're on shaky territory, but they're, they want to make sure they're doing this right. I'm really intrigued by the way that um, Homer sort of frames the dialogue between Penelope and Odysseus in 19. And I, I went through and I was trying to identify the, the words that he uses to describe the way they speak to each other. So not just what they say, mm-hmm. but if you go back and forth, there's something of a, something of a tennis match um, kind of evolving or going on between them where their characters are evolving in the moment. So Penelope listens at the beginning of the book and then it says Penelope had listened warily and now she spoke to scold the slave. So we get the word warily attached to Penelope. Then on the next page, we get the cunning Odysseus speaks and then he speaks his lines and then Penelope responds cautiously. Um, and then... Um, he then he responds to her and it says his lies were like the truth and she listens and she's sad. And then it says, calls Odysseus a trickster in the context of this conversation. And then when she finally responds, it says that she weeps and then it says pausing. So she, she pauses, she's thinking. And then he answers back to her shrewdly. And then she responds to him warily. And then it says yeah. the devious Odysseus responds to her. And then and it says Penelope that Penelope said, thoughtfully. responds thoughtfully. And and then that's the end of the conversation until later she begins and begins a conversation after he has spoken to the old nurse. And then it says that she begins a conversation with him and says, and it says shrewd Penelope. And then he, it's calls her him scheming again. And then she chooses her words with carrot says, and then she goes upstairs. So the back and forth there is really interesting because there's, there's, there's this constant sense of wariness, as you guys are saying. They're surrounded by enemies all the time. So she's in this constant position of carefulness, where she's being wary. Um, it says she's thoughtful. And she goes from being wary, 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 careful, careful, to thoughtful until she becomes shrewd. So the way, he, the way Emily Wilson at least translates that is really interesting to me because even just in those words, there's a bit of a narrative going on. Yeah. Like in the way that she's going from thoughtful to shrewd or, or careful to shrewd. It's almost like she's her Emily Wilson, at least is suggesting that her knowledge of the situation, her control of the situation is, is changing. It's evolving. She's gaining more control. She's gathering information until she's ready to take more action. I don't know that that means that she knows who he is, but she seems to be gaining comfort or maybe courage or, um, confidence in that relationship that she has with this weird, this not weird, but the, with this mysterious stranger and in what that's going to mean for her for the rest of the book. So I, I just find that really interesting. I, I think it's a really nice bit of translation, even if it's a lot of, there's a lot of adverbs there. <laughs> I think it's great. <laughs> I, I really like, I think, so at the beginning of their conversation, um, I, and I want to say first off, this book, book 19, this has been my favorite of Emily Wilson's translated books. So I went through and read a couple others because I really like book 19. Um, and so I went back and read a couple others and I thought, I think Emily Wilson's translation is my favorite out of the four that I read this week. I really like, for exactly the reason you're just pointing out, David, this back and forth, this volley of words is captured really well. I think with a lot of intensity, a lot of uh, um, urgency. And I I just loved it. I thought it was great. At the beginning of their conversation, Odysseus, she asks him about his family. She asks the stranger, the beggar, tell me about your family. And he says to her, don't ask me about my family. And I, I, I think... My interpretation of that, I read it as him saying, don't make me lie to you. Uh, And then he drops it 
And then she brings it up again. And then he tells her this really long lie. That's actually like brilliant. It's a brilliant, like there's details in it. You know, they say, if you're going to lie, make sure you throw in details so that it sounds like, you know, you were really, it sounds like you were experienced this thing. He does it perfectly. Um, And then on page uh, 431, um, looks like it's about line 205. It says, his lies were like the truth, and as she listened, she began to weep. Her face was melting like the snow that Zephyr scatters across the mountain peaks. Then it goes on to describe her lovely cheeks dissolved with tears. And I've always wondered, and in this particular translation, it hit me even harder, that she that this is a moment in which she thinks, like his lies were so good that she suddenly doubts that this is Odysseus. Mm. And she's like, oh, mm. no, it's not him. And then she weeps. Mm. And, and then she, after Out of she disappointment. weeps. Yes. And then yeah. after she weeps, she sets him a test. Now, stranger. It says she cried a long, long time, then spoke again. Now, stranger, I would like to set a test to see if you did host my husband and the men that followed him in your own house, as you have said. Describe his clothes and what he looked like and his men. So I think, and then he goes on to answer her with a very detailed description of clothes that he was wearing at the time that she gave him as a gift. So I think he's sending her a message here. No way. I know you doubted me, but it actually is me, but we got to keep it down, keep it on the down low. So I think there's like a secret conversation going on between the two of them here, or at least you can read it that way. What's so? I have the same thought, Heidi, and I put myself in Odysseus's shoes, and I think, man, I would not tell the lie that he tells her in the manner that he tells her. So what I would do when she asked about my family, if I was Odysseus, I would do something like, I was a famous king living right. in an island nation. I was called away for a great battle. I missed my wife so much. I can hardly tell you how much I missed her and my son who now must be a teen. You know what I mean? Like I would just like have all of the kind of like similarities line up without just saying, and I'm your husband. But he, you're exactly right. He goes into all these details. It's a great lie. It's a completely convincing lie, which to me says, okay, he can't trust the circumstances enough to reveal yet. He still has to keep Penelope fooled because of this big scheme that he's plotting. And he wants more than anything. And he he wants more than anything for her to know, but he won't even take the risk of like supplying these, these like kind of a mirrored story of his life. He doesn't even, he doesn't trust the circumstances enough to even do that. He just, he fills it with all these nutty details so that they throw her off the chase. I I think he's thrown her off the chase. That Yeah. It's, uh, you know, it's so interesting about these books and it's just brilliant for Homer as a craftsman is that we have the same sense of disorientation as Odysseus and Penelope do. As the readers, we have no idea what we can put our weight on either. Because it's also, all of those circumstances are also completely explained by Penelope has no idea and the beggar's deceiving her the whole time. Yeah, yeah. So any of those scenarios is completely possible and yet undercut by everything in these books. It's brilliant writing. It's unbelievably brilliant writing. No wonder we're still reading these books 3,000 years later because yeah. it's so good. We are just as disoriented as as Penelope and Odysseus, and we have no idea what we can put our weight on either. Hmm. The other thing that strikes me that's just so incredible about this book is I think any lesser writer would have... Okay. The, the central satisfying moment of the whole book and everybody knows it is when Odysseus and Penelope recognize each other as they are and Homer will not let us have that he will not let us have that he keeps delaying it and delaying it and delaying it until the tension is just like 
you're kind of dying. You're like, how much more must, must I suffer? But it's like evidence of a great craftsman is great craftsmen make their readers suffer to I don't, get what they want. Yep, that's right. I don't know who... I should know this actually, maybe one of you two. I don't know who, who ultimately um, divided this poem into books. Do you know when that first happened? Well, they're all in different scrolls, right? Isn't that how they were found? Like 24 scrolls. Okay. So it was Homer that did it. What? So when Homer decided that they have this conversation that, that uh, has this tension, it borders on this intimacy, right? And then they both go off. Like she goes up to her room by herself. Well, she goes with her slave girls and she goes without him. And then he's by himself kind of, they're separated. You know, they have this long, very intimate conversation and they're separated at night. That's a very poignant moment that just ratchets up the tension that you're talking about there, Tim. Yeah. One of the things that I, you know, I, um, I, I, I was going through words that describes (laughs) that describes them as they were talking. And then, so I went and checked Fagel's and they're all very similar, but then the, the last, you know, it's, it's things like cautious and, you know, um, quick and, clever and all that. The last two ways that Wilson describes Penelope are shrewd and then um, that she chooses her wives with care, or words with care. Fagels calls her seasoned huh. Um, huh. when, when huh. he calls her shrewd and then he calls her wise for that second part. And so it's like as the conversation is going on, she's learning information that she needs to learn. And then her, and then it, the poet, begins to remind us that she is wise, that she is seasoned, that she is shrewd. And that comes at the end of this book as they're about to be separated again. And as she's been gathering all this information about him. And it's like, it's, it's, that only brings in more tension in my opinion, because it reminds us that she's smart, that she's wise, that she is clued into what's going on. And so it feels like you're about to get that moment where she's like, Either either she she finally figures it out, or if she has figured it already, she reveals that she's figured it out, and they actually we get the catharsis of them being able to, you know, actually embrace or whatever whatever it is, like actually reveal to each other that they know what's up. But and and the fact that she, that we're reminded that she's wise and he's clever and that she's been gathering all this information makes it feel like that catharsis is about to happen. But then not only yeah. does the book end and we don't get that, but they separate. She goes up by herself and, you know, cries some more and he's left scheming about how to kill a bunch of people. And so that, 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 yeah. that catharsis is just delayed even more, but it feels like we should be getting closer to it. And just as it feels like we're going to get to it, it's pulled out from under us. So that tension right. is just, that just ratchets up the tension even more. It's cruel. Your point. It's so cruel. Yeah. I, I have a question that might shift the conversation in a different direction. Sure. That's fine. And it's this. Um, so Penelope and Odysseus are mirrors of each other in that they are both in in different ways. They're both very clever and they both are capable of, of crafting plots and they are both capable of kind of holding their own counsel circumspect Penelope, crafty Odysseus. My question is, are those character traits celebrated just because of the nature of this particular story that we're reading? Hmm. Or do you think that those character traits are esteemed by Greeks across the board? This is what they want from their king and their queen, or maybe even from all people. Let's just say for now, this is what all Greeks want from their king and their queen. Huh. <laughs> are you, are you going to respond to that, Heidi? <laughs> great question. I think that that's the... I mean, I know for a fact that that's the accusation leveled against the Greeks later on by many later Roman and Christian The writers. Romans especially. That right. said that that was wrong. That that you're just so, that the Greeks were devious and manipulative, and um, what they called being a great tactician, what the Greeks called strategizing, was actually just fraudulent and evil manipulations. Um. 
So, and that was an, an accusation leveled by the Romans and the medieval Christians against Greece as a whole, mm. not just against this book. So in this drawing from that, I would say probably the answer to your question is yes. And then we're led, then, you know, here in modern times where we have to make a choice whether we see Penelope and Odysseus as being devious and manipulative or whether we see them as being heroic and strategic um, in, in a salvific sense. And you, and when you say yes, Heidi, you mean just to clarify, like it was a cultural, it Value. was a virtue yes. that the culture esteemed, not just the plot, not just because it suits this book. Right. That, yeah. Yes. What do you think, David? I don't know. <laughs> Am I allowed to say that? Yeah. <laughs> I don't. I don't know. I'll go with what she said or whatever you say. You. What do you think? I agree with Heidi. I Crafty, great. I'm going the with great that tactician. <laughs> I haven't thought about it enough to, to. I mean, I'm not. I'm not one to necessarily not have opinions about things I haven't thought about. But in this case, it being a podcast, and all, <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and uh, say I don't know what I'm talking about in this particular one. <laughs> I think so. I mean, what do you think, Tim? I, I I agree with you. I think it's something that Homer is esteeming. I, I, my hunch, and again, like I think there's probably research that we could do outside of the pages of this book, and we could probably come up with a pretty good answer. But just based on the pages of this book, my hunch is that Homer thinks that this is something to be esteemed among leaders. Because mm-hmm. I, I think he, on the other hand, like, can you imagine if one of, um, Odysseus's soldiers is crafty and wily and he's a, he's telling lies and he deceives even Odysseus. I think Homer would lambast him for that. Hmm. So I don't know that it's I think it's a cultural it's culturally esteemed but it's culturally esteemed for those who ought to practice it mainly like generals, kings, queens. Huh. Hmm. And I think the Greeks are not afraid of saying I mean they, this is part of, I think, what happens in the classical age is that, let me back up. I think in the Homeric age, because roles and kind of like a hierarchy within a society is so vital, and I, th- I get the impression that different roles have kind of a different set of moral compasses. And so it would be wrong for the swineherd to be conniving and wily in the way that Odysseus is. But I think because of the role that he plays, the Greeks and Homer would say, yeah, I think that Odysseus is right to be always like telling lies to get what he needs because he's a king. It's what he needs to do to like, you know, put the house in order to save his men. Right. What's interesting about what you're asking, Tim, is that you're, I think you're right about the, the leadership um, piece because we have Odysseus as a king who's celebrated as a warrior, but it's very clear from both epics, from the Iliad and the Odyssey, that he was not the greatest warrior, right? But he is by far the greatest mm. rhetorician. And the, the great hero of the Iliad is Achilles, who is mm-hmm. a, the great warrior, the, the, the greatest of warriors. And these, and within the, the virile virtues, the masculine virtues, uh, in Greek society, you have war and rhetoric. And then you have Achilles, the master of war in the Iliad, and Odysseus, the master of rhetoric in the Odyssey. And, and, and how these two um, manly virtues play out in both of them in each epic is fascinating to delve into. When I'm teaching it, that's what I'm honing in on, war and rhetoric. What do we see in both of these heroes and and in the other heroes and in the story um, as these two parallel lines, war and rhetoric, take the culture forward? And um, 
how they're explored and undercut and exalted in these two heroes. Um, so, but in order to be a good rhetorician, Homer seems to be saying you must be deceptive, which later on in the golden age of Greece, of course, that's challenged by Socrates. Right, right. So it's interesting to look at it from that perspective in terms of the how this hero, how Odysseus exemplifies and embodies the cultural virtues that then change and shift over the centuries and then lead us to today in Western culture. Yeah. By contrast, hospitality seems to me, the practice of hospitality is a universal good. It right. may be practiced in different ways among people with different roles, but the effort toward hospitality seems to me like across the board, if you don't get hospitality, you just don't get it. You don't get it at all. I mean, over and over, the more, especially the more I read this book, the more I read it as sort of, it's almost like a handbook on the cultural practice of hospitality, the rewards that go with practicing it, the cost of not practicing it. And I'm not, I'm not trying to overly simplify the book. This is obviously right. an epic of the highest order, and it touches on all sorts of different aspects of, of life. But if I had to just choose a word for this book, and only word, I, only one word, I would choose hospitality. It's everywhere. It's just everywhere. Right. I completely agree. And here, okay, so what do you make of this then, along with that hospitality thing? On page 446, um, oh man, it's just so much actually in book 20. Um, here on, on the very first page of book 20, so it's 445, Line, the beginning of the book. Odysseus was lying at the entrance on an untreated ox hide over which he heaped a pile of fleeces from the sheep the suitor sacrificed. Your enemy spread a thick blanket over him. He lay there but did not sleep. His mind was plotting how to kill the suitors. Then the girls who had been sleeping with suitors slipped outside, giggling and happy to be out together. His heart was roused to rage. He wondered whether to jump at them and slaughter everyone or let them have one very final night with these proud suitors. And his heart was barking just as a mother dog will stand astride her little puppies, bristling to fight if she sees any man she does not know. So his heart growled inside him. He was shocked at their behavior. He slapped his chest and told himself, be strong, my heart. You were hounded by worse the day the Cyclops ate your strong companions, but you kept your nerve till cutting saved you from the cave. You thought that you would die there. So your point about hospitality, they're, the suitors are just the worst guests. They're sleeping right. with his servant girls while courting his wife and, and squandering his riches. And he still still at the bottom of page 446, has to ask Athena and Zeus for permission to kill them because that mm -hmm. would make him a bad host. Right. So It's a great point, Heidi. It's such a right, great point. Right? Like this, this code of hospitality is so deeply ingrained that Odysseus isn't even sure he can violate it yeah. under the circumstances that he has. His prayer to Zeus, let me read it for our listeners. His prayer to Zeus is this. Um, oh, excuse me. It's not to Zeus. It's to Athena. Um, online, it looks like about 35. Clever Odysseus said, goddess, yes, all that is true. But I am wondering how I can attack those upstarts who are always clustered together while I am alone. My biggest fear is this. If you and Zeus help me to kill them, then what? Where can I run to escape my punishment? You tell me. So he still is like, but I'm their host. How can I kill them? Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I don't know. What do you make of all that? I was going to continue reading, Heidi. So yeah, next please. lines. With glinting eyes, Athena said, so stubborn. Most men trust friends, even weaker, mortal friends, whose judgment is far worse than mine. 
I am a goddess, and throughout your many trials, I have watched over you. If we were ambushed, surrounded by not one but 50 gangs of men who hoped to murder us, you would not escape. So it's interesting that, like, it, it, it seems to me you're right that Odysseus is asking a question in which he wants Athena to say why he will be morally justified at the end of killing the suitors for breaking um, the code of hospitality. But her reply is something more like, hey, I'm going to be loyal to you. Don't worry about it. Right. Which is a little, I don't know. It, it, it's, it's a little bit confusing because I, I wonder if her answer is a way of saying, I will stay with you and thus you will be justified at the end of not practicing hospitality by slaughtering the suitors. Right. Right. I guess that's, the, I guess that's a good way to read it. Hmm. Yeah, I think, I mean, that that works. And if you keep going, <laughs> to go back to the volley kind of between Odysseus and Penelope, the next thing that happens is that Athena gives Odysseus sleep and he uh, is relaxed and released from his worries. And meanwhile... It says his faithful wife was wide awake, crying and sitting upright on her bed against soft pillows. Can't you see that in, uh, like, on the screen? Do you play in your head like a movie? As oh you're yeah, all the it? time, all the time. <laughs> Do you? Yes, he falls yeah. asleep, and then you know, cut scene, um, and then hone in on Penelope upstairs, weeping as always for her husband, knowing the terrible hospitality or the, the violation of Zania that's going on in her, in her home. Yeah. I don't want to overblow this, you know, but I, I wonder if the kind of, de- I don't know if, if breaking, if breaking the hospitality code is one of these kind of like, um, clash of a clash of norms that is inherent in Greek culture at the time. Meaning, if someone has done all of this stuff to you, to your wife, to your son, but they're doing it in your home, and you should in some way be practicing hospitality to them, like when is it okay to forego? the code of hospitality in order to exact revenge. My hunch, I think that within the pages of the the Odyssey, um, there's a little bit of of a clash, an internal clash of codes here. Mm -hmm. But we still, I don't know, it seems absolutely right when Odysseus does end up killing the suitors Boy, it sure feels like he was justified in doing it. Right. Well, but is a I Greek think- gonna walk away, Heidi? Is a Greek gonna walk away and say, gosh, yeah, they got what they deserve, but mm, Odysseus, I'm not quite sure that, that was the right. I'm not sure like that you kind of like were consistent with your code there. Right. I think that's oh, such a good question. And I don't know. I I keep um comparing and contrasting with the Iliad with the epic hero Achilles and his in book nine of the Iliad, he undercuts and rejects his own code by refusing to go back into battle, even though Agamemnon offers him all the treasure that he should have had and more. And he says, it's not worth it to me anymore. I I don't want to, I, I reject it. He in some way, many ways, rejects the entire society by refusing to fight in that moment in Book Nine, and maybe that's the corresponding moment from killing the suitors for Odysseus, or maybe even to the Greeks, it was just a moment of triumph. Um, because he does have permission at this point from Athena, who's helping him and strategizing it. And she's already fated that the suitors are going to die. Um, And she directly communicates that here 
to Odysseus. And so he's mm-hmm. relieved in his mind. Um, but it's a worth, it, it does show his piety, I guess would be more the Roman term for it than the Greek term, but it shows his faithfulness to his own society that he questions whether or not he should kill the suitors. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm back. <laughs> Hi. Hello, David. Um, don't know what you told the public, but you know, I was away Nothing. for a minute. So we didn't yeah, tell them. I had to step away, which is why I was so quiet. Uh, we, um, we should probably start thinking about wrapping it up given the amount of time. So what, if you want to, uh, you know, finish the topic of conversation that you moved on to without me <laughs> proving once and for all that I'm not necessary, then feel free to do so. And then, uh, we can take some final thoughts. <laughs> I think for me, I think we kind of put a bow on the dilemma, um, of like the conflict between hospitality and appropriate revenge. I think we put a bow on it. Do you, Heidi? Well, I think that we, our eloquence certainly resolved <laughs> that issue over the ages that has been, that, that keeps coming to the surface in this book, for sure. So over the last, I don't know, seven and a half minutes that I missed, you, you solved an age-old problem. I feel like that happens said. all the time with conversations that I have. And I'm like, we just solved the world's problems, but it wasn't recorded. <laughs> Specifically, ones when I'm not there. <laughs> yeah, I have to say, it recorded for posterity, though. So this is a big day. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're welcome, yes. universe, or I guess for Tim and Heidi. One of the things that I like in service of right. uh, go ahead, Tim. Speak. One of the things that I like about close reads is that I think we give each other permission to kind of go out over fifty thousand fathoms of water and not really know the answer nautical, back, back into the nautical, the nautical. Um, and say I don't know I don't know the I don't know if this is like really like the, that the text is showing us this big dilemma or I mean I, we could be misreading it but I like the fact that we're kind of like not afraid to explore a little bit and maybe the bad thing is if we discover we were wrong and it's happened to me, believe me off the air, I'm like, Oh gosh, I think I said X and it was actually Y. The bad thing is it's kind of too late. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's too late. The pill, the, the, the feathers are blowing and in no the wind and I can't get it, it back. That's true. Oh, well, it's a lonely at the top, you know, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> lonely being on a podcast that people will remind you about the things that you said wrong. Oh, um, man. But we are, um, we're going to be talking about 20 and or, sorry, sorry, 21 and 22 next week. So those books are called an archery contest and bloodshed. And then the next week's our last episode. So, and then, and then the Q and a episode. So there's only three episodes left on the odyssey of the 12 or whatever we set out. You know, we're, we're nearing the end of our journey guys. And, uh, so, I wanted to remind people not only to be prepared for those books and to post your questions, as I said earlier, but after this book, we're going to be diving into Lewis Auchincloss's The Rector of Justin. So, you know, um, be on the lookout for that book if you don't already have it. Um, pick up a copy at the library, reserve it, whatever. But that's the book we're going to be starting in a few weeks. And then after that, we're going to be doing A River Runs Through It, which I know Tim is. What? Very fond of. I didn't know so, that. Yeah, you did. You just forgot. <laughs> No, no, no. I did not know it. I knew that it was up for consideration. I did not know that it had like won a place. My heart is so happy. I am so happy so about we, that. So should Heidi and I just do that episode because it's too emotional for you? Or? <laughs> right. I probably will like say a lot of stupid things just because I'm so enraptured with that book that I'll just, yeah. It's like when, you're on, a, when you're on a first date with somebody and you just say all right. the wrong things. You're yeah, right. It, it's probably going to feel like that. <laughs> I've never read it, Tim. So I'm I'm really excited. So it's really it really Heidi, I have to say, <laughs> Yeah, it really is. I have to say, I fully acknowledge that part of the reason it's a heart book for me is because I identify so strongly with the characters because their lives, I mean, their their father, the father is a pivotal character in the book. He's so much like my dad in like all of these like wonderful ways. 
And so it, I know that part of the reason it resonates so deeply with me is just because sure. I wasn't raised in Montana, but boy, this feels like my life. I mean, you know, Georgia, Montana, eh, same thing. (laughs) No one who's ever been to Montana. Yep. Um, All right. Well, um, are you, are you good? Do you want to offer more final thoughts for this episode or, uh, you know, should we, you know, can't wait for the archery contest. That's my final thought. Can't wait for the archery contest. Got to have some bloodshed. Yeah. There hasn't been enough killing in this book. It right. is time. Well, there hasn't been enough killing on the on the side of justice. Yes, That's what right. We're looking for. We need some. Let the hammer fall. Resolution. We've been holding our breath for several weeks, and it's time for that satisfying exhale. A uh, battle cry. That's right. Yes. I've been thinking a lot about the the difference between you know revenge and justice, or if there is. Mm a difference and is this a revenge story or a story of justice and is there a matter of degree and all that and and how much it matters so that's something i'll probably be bringing it up next week great so that's my final that's thought but great i can't wait to talk about that all right well we will do that next week so make sure you read along um if you are up for it you like this podcast please do rate or review it and again you can support the show over on patreon patreon.com slash close reads and there are uh, several bonus episodes there and um, then also we will have another bonus episode coming up soon and if you're a supporter you will get to hear um, a couple of Heidi's conference talks that she gave this summer at the conference those will be posted soon as well so make sure you've joined that if you want all of that content um, with that for Heidi White and for Tim McIntosh I'm David Kern thanks so much for listening be back next week to talk talk with you about all that bloodshed and all those battle cries and all that kind of stuff and in the meantime happy reading